Last week we took a quick look at Julian Apostate who ruled the Roman Empire uh, from 361 to 363. We saw that he rose up during the Arian heresy. Society at that time was completely flooded by sin and moral degradation. And the church was suffering terribly from the heresy, from priests leading immoral lives, and from the vast majority of the bishops who had become heretics. We saw how Julian turned to paganism and how he got possessed. We took a quick look at his persecution of the church, how he issued public acts, such as appeals for tolerance to those of different religious persuasions, religious liberty, and freedom of conscience, which at least apparently seemed fairly reasonable, but were actually specifically intended by him to be used to promote the pagan agenda. We also saw how he deliberately established a policy of selective law enforcement was also used to promote a pagan agenda while at the same time harming the Christians. We took a really brief look at his very carefully uh, planned out culture war. It was designed to crush Christian resistance as well as reduce and remove the visible presence of Christians in society by using tactics such as de-Christianizing the schools, de-Christianizing civil service, de-Christianizing the military, removing visible Christian signs and symbols from the public forum, and then manipulating the political environment in such a way as to result in the expulsion of the clergy from the cities. So much for the review. We don't have time for many details, but we'll make a few more points about Julian's persecution before we pick up the story again. Besides this coordinated strategy to subtly persecute marginalized and demoralized Christians, Julian also recognized that no one pagan cult was strong enough to stand against the church. So he threw the whole weight of his imperial imperial authority into a project to unite all the pagan cults into one stable system with a church hierarchy and structure that was modeled on the Catholic Church, a high priest in place of the Pope, pagan priests, a so-called code of conduct for the pagan clergy, organizations intended to imitate our acts of charity, which really frustrated him, and so forth and so forth. Julian also launched an intellectual attack on the church, writing works in which he attacked the scriptures and their authority and tried to demonstrate that Christians were simply apostates from Judaism and that Christian beliefs were harmful novelties. Okay, now let's pick up the story again. About four miles out of Antioch, there was a beautiful area named Daphne that had a famous temple dedicated to Apollo. At that temple, the emperor Hadrian had learned his future from an oracle that spoke there, and Julian decided that he too wanted to consult that oracle. A contemporary of Julian, a a Christian author named Sozman, tells a story. Quote, The previous ruler had turned this pagan temple into a Christian sign containing the relics a Christian shrine, excuse me, containing the relics of a former bishop of Antioch, St. Babylas, the martyr. After this, the demon ceased to utter oracles. This silence continued unbroken, although libations, incense, and victims were offered in abundance to the demon. When the Emperor Julian himself entered the temple for the purpose of consulting the oracle and offered up gifts and sacrifices with entreaties to grant a reply, Eventually, the oracle spoke and indicated the cause of its previous silence. The demon stated that the place was filled with dead bodies and that this prevented the oracle from speaking. At this, Julian realized 
what the dead bodies were. It was the presence of the relics of St. Babylas, the martyr, which had silenced the oracle. So he commanded his tomb to be removed. The Christians, therefore, assembled together and conveyed the coffin to the city. Men and women, young men and maidens, old men and children, drew the casket and encouraged one another by singing psalms as they went along down the road, apparently for the purpose of lightening their labor. But in truth they sang because they were transported by zeal and spirit for the religious belief which the emperor had opposed. The best singers sang first, and the multitude replied in chorus, and the following was the burden of their song. Confundanter omnis, qui odorant scuptilia, qui gloriantur in simulacri suis. Close quote. Okay, what did I just say? They're singing Psalm 96, which uh, I'll just uh, write, write in the Vulgate that the title is the Lord King confounds the false gods and extols the just men. And the, the one verse they kept singing over and over again is maybe confound, all those who adore sculptures may be confounded and those who glory in, in, in these false images. But it, it talks about, I'll just read you some of it. The, the Lord uh, reigns, the earth rejoices, and the, the, so do many of the nations. Uh, clouds and darkness surround him, uh, justice and, and judgment, uh, he seated his throne on justice and judgment. Fire precedes him, and it and and, uh, and all around him it, it, it inflames his enemies. It burns his enemies. The lightnings, uh, the, the flash of lightning illuminates the whole world, uh, and the, the the world saw and shook. Mountains, just as wax, melt in, in the face of the Lord, in the face of the Lord who's over all the earth. And they announce, the heavens announce his justice, and, and uh, all of the people uh, see his glory. May they be confounded, all those who adore sculptures and who glory in these false images. And, and it goes on and on. So they're singing this really, really loud, you know, because and, and, uh, they're singing, you know, they're singing it in Julian's face, obviously. Well, a contemporary of Julian, another Christian historian named Socrates Scholasticus, describes the reaction of Julian. Then indeed, quote, then indeed the temp- emperor's real temper and disposition, which he had hitherto kept as much as possible from observation, became fully manifested. For he was no longer able to restrain himself, but being goaded almost to madness by these reproachful psalms, he is ready to inflict the same cruelties on the Christians with which Diocletian's agents had formerly visited them. In other words, he wants to kill everybody. He's, they're just driving him crazy. They're singing the psalms. Uh, they're, they're chanting the psalms at uh, anyway, so he's, but he's, he's getting ready for the Persian War, and it says, since his solicitude about the Persian expedition afforded him no leisure for personally executing these wishes, he commanded Sallust, who's the Praetorian prefect, to seize those who had been most conspicuous for their zeal and psalm singing in order to make examples out of them. The prefect, though a pagan, was far from being pleased with this commission, but since he dared not contravene it, he caused several of the Christians to be apprehended and some of them to be imprisoned. One young man named Theodore, whom the heathens brought before him, he subjected to a variety of tortures. And we know from, from other guys writing about him, he's put on a rack and stretched and all that. Causing his Theodore to be so lacerated and only released him from further punishment when he thought that he could not possibly outlive the torments. Now this isn't in this, but in another count, Theodore, the whole time they're torturing him, he's singing the psalm louder and louder and louder. None of these are not crying. He keeps singing confidently. You know, may they be confounded all those who adore, uh, adore statues. Yet God preserved this sufferer so that he long survived that confession. Rufinus, 
the author of ecclesiastical history written in Latin, states that he himself conversed with the same Theodore a considerable time afterwards and inquired of him whether in the process of scourging and racking uh, he had not felt the most intense pains. Theodore's answer was that he felt the pain of the tortures to which he was subjected for a very short time and that a young man stood by him who both wiped off the sweat which produced by the acuteness of the ordeal through which he was passing and at the same time strengthened his mind so that he rendered this time of trial a season of delight rather than of suffering. Let this suffice concerning the most wonderful Theodore. So it's an angel. His angel's appearing to him and strengthening him during this. So Theodore's getting tortured for singing these psalms. And what does he do when he's tortured? He sings them even louder. You can imagine how Julian thought. It didn't. And so Julian wanted to inflict capital punishment on the whole lot. But Sallust finally came up to him and said, Look, he told him what's going on with Theodore. You're just giving more glory to the Christians. If you don't, if you better ignore him or otherwise, this is going to turn out badly for all of us. And so he counseled Julian against uh, killing anybody or even torturing anybody anymore because he, he realized the kind of reaction it would have. Okay. It still didn't end there. Soon after, quote, Soon after the relics of St. Babylon had been taken away from the temple, fire suddenly fell upon the temple from above. The roof and the very statue of the god were burnt, and the naked walls of the columns in which the portico and the back part of the edifice had rested were alone escaped the conflagration. The Christians believed that the prayers of the martyr had drawn down fire from heaven upon the demon. Close quote. So the whole, they pulled St. Babylon out. Uh, something falls on it and uh, one of the Catholic farmers had seen what looked like a bolt of lightning come down anyway it burnt the temple so Julian flipped out and ordered the Catholic shrines and chapels far and wide have their roofs burned out or that they be torn down you know he's going to show God anyway Julian had had it by that time and decided to just turn his focus on Christ personally so he decided to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem why? in order to directly attack the credibility of our Lord in order to mock Christ and falsify his prophecy that not a stone would remain on a stone. Now last year we looked at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman legions. Today we'll take a quick look at Julian's attempt to mock Christ and rebuild the temple. After Julian commanded the temple be rebuilt, the Jews flocked to Jerusalem and confident in their newfound power, they began to abuse and mock the already persecuted Christians, threatening to treat them as severely as the Jews themselves had been treated previously by the Romans. Contributions poured in from all directions. Julian ordered his treasurers to furnish money and everything else possibly needed for the project and ordered them to spare absolutely no expense. Sozeman, quote, The Jews sought for the most skillful artisans, collected materials, cleared the ground, and entered so earnestly upon the task that even the women carried heaps of earth and brought their necklaces and other female ornaments towards defraying the expense. The emperor, the other pagans, and all the Jews regarded every other undertaking as secondary in importance to this. Although the pagans were not well disposed towards the Jews, yet they assisted them in this enterprise because they reckoned upon its ultimate success and hoped by this means to falsify the prophecies of Christ. Besides this motive, the Jews themselves thought that the time had come for rebuilding their temple. When they had removed the ruins of the former building, they dug up the ground and cleared away its foundation. Close quote. So here, at this point, they've cleared everything out, and they've got everything ready to lay a foundation. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who is the local bishop, he's also a doctor of the church, calmly watched all these proceedings, and then he reassured his anxious people the Jews were not going to be able to place a stone upon a stone. It wasn't yet the end of the world. They weren't going to be able to rebuild the temple. 
Now, here's the following events were recorded by both pagan and Catholic authors, and in, including the 4th century doctors of the church, their contemporaries of Julian, St. Gregory Nazianzen, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Ambrose. We'll summarize the events, we'll follow the order of Father Butler, and we'll insert comments from other sources. First thing, a, bunch, a terrible storm and whirlwind arose that carried away the huge piles of lime and sand that had been there to prepare the motor. The next event was recorded by a contemporary Christian historian. Quote, Fire came down from heaven and consumed all the builder's tools. So the flames are seen playing upon mallets, irons to smooth and polish stones, saws, hatchets, adzes, in short, all the various implements which the workmen had procured as necessary for the undertaking. Close quote, Socrates uh, Scholasticus. So the tools are burnt by fire from heaven. Then suddenly, shining crosses were impressed on the bodies and the garments of the workmen. These signs of the cross seemed like real works of art and could not be washed out by the infidels. St. Gregory Nazianzen says, quote, Let those who are spectators and partakers of that prodigy exhibit their garments, to which, the, which to the present time are stamped with the brand marks of the cross. When St. Gregory's writing, he's seen them. For at the very moment that anyone, either of our own brethren, the Catholics, or of the outsiders, the infidels, was telling the event or hearing it told by others, he beheld the miracle happening in his own case or to his neighbor, being all spotted with stars, so these crosses look like little spotted stars, or beholding others so marked upon his clothes in a manner more colorful than could be done by any artificial work of the loom or elaborate painting. Close quote. Now, Next thing is terrible earthquakes. These collapsed the trenches that were dug for the new foundations at the same time threw up the old foundation stones, which in turn wounded great numbers of the Jews who were working as well as bystanders. This earthquake also collapsed the buildings nearby that were being used as lodgings for the workers, crushing many Jews to death and leaving the survivors maimed and wounded. As if all this weren't terrifying enough, then balls of fire became shooting out of the ground. Many of the Jews fled for protection to a nearby Catholic church, but mysteriously prevented from getting through the door. St. Gregory Nazianzen describes what happens next. Quote, when they were forcing their way into the church, a flame issued forth from the church and stopped them, and some it burnt up and consumed, so that a fate befell them similar to the disaster of the people of Sodom, whilst others it maimed in the principal parts of the body, and so left them for a living monument of God's threatening and wrath against sinners. Close quote. Now, in spite of all these incredible events, as soon as things calmed down, many of the workmen attempted to begin work again. Immediately, these balls of fire became shooting out of the ground and killed some of the Jews. Every single time that they tried to resume work, these balls of fire would come shooting out until they finally decided, let's cease work. Amanius, now this is, I'm going to quote a pagan now. This is a pagan author who's a friend of Julian. This is a, so this is a hostile witness. Here's what he has to say. This is an associate and friend of Julian. Pagan, quote, And when the foreman the next day earnestly pressed on the work with the assistance of the governor of the province, there issued such horrible balls of fire out of the earth near the foundations, which rendered the place from time to time inaccessible to the scorched and blasted workmen. And the fire continuing this matter to drive them to a distance, the foreman thought it proper to stop the project. Close quote. Now that's a pagan. Finally, Theodora, an early history historian in the church, reports that, quote, on that night and also on the following night, the sign of the cross of salvation was seen brightly shining in the sky, close quote. So in spite of the fact that this project had all the fantastic wealth and supplies of the Roman Empire and also the backing of the Jewish people, they were literally 
unable to place a single stone upon a stone. It's pretty amazing. Well, what was the result of all this? St. Gregory Nazianzen states that there was, quote, such great consternation at the spectacle that nearly all, as by one signal and with one voice, invoked the God of the Christians with many praises and supplication. Whilst many, without further delay, but at the very moment of the occurrence, ran up to our priests and besought them earnestly that they might be made members of the church, being sanctified by the holy baptism, for they had been saved by means of their fright. Close quote. Sozman adds, quote, Many were led to confess that Christ is God and that the rebuilding of the temple was not pleasing to him. Others presented themselves in the church, were initiated, and besought Christ with hymns and supplications to pardon their transgression. If anyone does not feel disposed to believe my narrative, let him go and be convinced by those who heard the facts I have related from the eyewitnesses of them, for they are still alive. Close quote. Unfortunately, many of the Jews who had in their fear invoked the protection of the Lord still did not convert. And although Julian was given a full report of these miraculous events, he hardened his heart like Pharaoh. There's a lot more to be said, but we have to stop somewhere. Before we consider his death, we'll consider just one other event that gives some insight into Julian's actual character. Quote, Julian came to the temple in Cary, and after going through certain rites with his companions... He locked and sealed the doors and stationed sentinels with orders to see that none came in till his return. When news came of his death, the shrine was opened, and within was found a proof of the late emperor's manliness, wisdom, and piety. For there was seen a woman hung up on high by the hairs of her head and with her hands outstretched. The villain had cut open her belly and so, I suppose, learned from her liver his victory over the Persians. See, a parenthetical remark. This is when, when they're studying the entrails. They look at the liver and, you know, some kind of a cult thing where you look at a liver and it's going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. See, so sacrifice victims, you look at the liver and that, that tells you everything you need to know. Anyway, so the villain had cut open her belly and so, I suppose, learned from her liver his victory over the Persians. This was the abomination discovered at Carrie. It is said that at Antioch, a number of chests were discovered at the palace, filled with human heads, and also many wells full of corpses. Such is the teaching of the evil deities. Close quote, Theodora. In March 363, Julian, who had spent the winter in Antioch, preparing for war with Persia, set out with his army, marched into Mesopotamia, that's Iraq, and defeated the Persians in a battle close to modern-day Baghdad. He then put their capital to siege, but he was unable to capture it. Although the Persian king attempted on several occasions to come to terms with Julian, he refused to hear of it. Since the Romans didn't have the supplies to sustain a long siege, Julian decided to burn his supply ships and retreat. On June 26, 363, during a small skirmish, he was fatally wounded in the side by an unknown assailant with a blow that pierced his liver. St. Gregory Nanzianzen points out the fittingness of this particular wound. Quote, the liver of the victim was the approved means for reading the future. And it was precisely in that organ that Julian, archdiviner, received the fatal thrust. Close quote. So who killed Julian? No one knows for sure. But the Coptic Catholics of Egypt tell a story. It can also be seen this portrayed in ancient icons about St. Mercurius. St. Macarius was a martyr who had been famed for carrying two swords as an officer in the army of the Emperor Dacius. He had one sword that he, 
that he got from the Romans, and one an angel had given it to him. Anyway, he's a, he's a martyr. And one day, St. Basil the Great was praying before an icon of this saint, St. Mercurius, and he begged St. Mercurius to avenge the Christians who were being murdered by Julian the Apostate. At this, the saint faded from view in the holy icon and later reappeared. And as he did so, St. Basil saw that the two swords had turned red and he knew the emperor had been slain. Theodore reports one more important fact about Julian's death. Quote, It is related that when Julian had received the wound, he filled his hand with blood, flung it into the air, and cried, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Close quote. Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. It's a perfect summary of Julian's terrible and unfortunate life. Julian's whole life is a personal grudge match against Christ our Lord. He tried to conquer Christ by destroying his church. He tried to conquer Christ by black magic and the restoration of paganism. And now he tried to conquer Christ by rebuilding a temple in order to restore the now defunct bloody sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats. Sacrifices that had passed away with the crucifixion. Explicitly antichrist sacrifices, which were intended to be visible rejections of the once-for-all bloody sacrifice made by our Lord on Calvary and its representation in the unbloody sacrifice of the Mass. Julian had fought Christ, and Christ won. Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Let's close with a few things to ponder. Now remember what a type is. A type is a person, a thing, or an action that actually exists, which is also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. Keep in mind that the apostasy at the time of Julian is a type of the great apostasy, and Julian himself is a type of the Antichrist. In other words, they prefigure the great apostasy and the Antichrist himself. So based on the indications we've seen in these prefigurements, During the fulfillment, here are a few of the things we would expect to see. There's many more conclusions that you can draw on your own easily. I'll just point out some of the more obvious ones. What would we expect to see? A massive rejection of true faith with an accompanying uprise of paganism. A subtle persecution of the church involving such methods as legislation promoting tolerance of other religious views and selective law enforcement. A culture war designed to crush Christian resistance and reduce and ultimately eliminate the visible presence of Christians in society using tactics like de-Christianizing schools, de-Christianizing civil service, de-Christianizing the military, and removing visible Christian signs and symbols from the public view. An attempt to rebuild the temple, which, by the way, is the current goal of the Temple Institute of Jerusalem, in preparation for which it has already produced new temple vessels and priestly garments in conjunction with its goal to see Israel rebuild the Holy Temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was reestablished just two years ago in January of 2005 there in Jerusalem. A project to unite all the false religions into one stable system. For example, something like the United Religions Initiative, URI, founded in 1995 by the Episcopal Bishop William Swing, has the goal of creating a spiritual equivalent of the United Nations, encompassing all religions and all spiritual movements. The Byzantine Catholic author Lee Penn summarizes just a few of the goals of the URI, squelching Christian evangelism in the name of promoting interreligious peace, marginalizing Orthodox Christians as intolerant and fundamentalist, 
promoting the idea that all religions and spiritual movements are equally true and equally efficacious as ways to attain communion with God. So if we were heeding our Lord's command to watch, these would be just a few of the indicators we'd want to look for. Okay, it's not particularly radical to say, as St. Pius X did over a hundred years ago, that we're living in the great apostasy, or at least a dress rehearsal. But that shouldn't make us particularly alarmed, as long as we remember that God's in charge. He loves us. He knows exactly when he wanted each one of us to live. There's no point in getting excited. God's in charge. He knows what he's doing. He can do his job. We don't want to imitate Chicken Little. We want to imitate St. John Birchman's. That means we need to make sure in the state of grace and do our duty for our state and life. Get serious about the faith. Get serious about holiness. Which means saying your rosary every day, saying your three Hail Marys every morning and night, your other prayers, wearing your brown scapular, stop sinning, going to confession about every two weeks, make fervent communions, put God first, and become holy. Do your duty. Put God first and become holy. It's pretty basic. Just do your duty.